Would you please join me in praying? Well, good morning, Lord. Jesus, when you prayed for your church, you prayed that we would remain in the world but not be of it, not share its values, not live like the rest of the people in the world. Lord, would you show us what that life looks like and give us courage to live it? And as the preacher this morning, I ask that you'd help me to be clear and faithful to your word. For I ask this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're in this sermon series, and we are um, considering ourselves as sojourners, exiles, people who don't belong in this world. It's an odd situation to be, uh, as one scholar calls it, resident exiles, right? Because that's kind of what we are. We're resident exiles. We live here and reside here, but we don't fit here. And so um, life under the cross looks different. If you're a person who's come to understand what Jesus has done for you on the cross, your life just looks different. And that puts you oftentimes at odds with the world. And one of the greatest arguments or complaints that worldly people leverage against Christianity is that, and you've heard it put this way, ah, the church is just a bunch of hypocrites, right? A bunch of hypocrites. We hear that all the time. And I'm thinking about that because Peter is the one that wrote this epistle, and Peter has experienced a massive transformation. After he had experienced the gospel and was full of the Spirit, he was a different man. He was transformed. And we're people in progress. And so to call someone a hypocrite, well, it's not necessarily true. Consider the definition of hypocrisy. This is Merriam-Webster's definition. It is feigning feigning, like pretending. It's feigning to be what one is not, or feigning to believe what one does not. That's a very different thing. And to, to be clear, the church does sometimes do that. Christians sometimes pretend to be better than we really are, and that is hypocrisy. But to understand the, the basic gospel message, it's not hypocrisy at all. It's just simply being a work in progress, you know? So there are two protections for this. One is to stay humble concerning grace, that the only reason I haven't fallen into the same pit as everybody else is by the grace of God. God has done something in my life to save me. He did it. And I still, to this day, it's funny how a simple statement or a sermon can be impressed upon you as a high school kid, as a high school kid, I heard Pastor Doug in the Presbyterian Church tell the little statement that Corey Temboom made when she was being praised for her goodness. Corey Temboom was the daughter of a, a Dutch watchmaker, and her, their family was hiding Jews during the Holocaust, but then were eventually caught, and she was thrown in prison, and her faith in Christ sustained her, and then on the outside, she did live, and when she came out, she was a powerful voice for Christianity. And she was being praised one time for her goodness or whatever, And reflecting on Jesus' triumphal entry, she said this, do you think for one minute that donkey thought they were cheering for him? (laughs) I heard that in high school, and it's stuck with me ever since. You know, it's about God's grace. It's not hypocrisy. If something is going well in my life, if I happen to look like Christ in a moment, it's because Christ is doing it, not me. He's doing this work. I'm surrendering to it. I'm praying for it. I want it to happen, but he's doing the work, not me. So that's a protection against the the accusation of hypocrisy. Also, um, being real about the road ahead. Not one of us is perfect yet. We're all in progress. The Christian is being transformed 
Salvation is both a point in time and a process that will be completed eventually. And these two truths about being real about the journey ahead and also being humble about God's grace, it makes Christianity incredibly accessible to this world that we live in. If you're a Christian, being an exile in this world, a sojourner, you're also a witness to a different way. Consider why it's so accessible. Here's the gospel. I see my emptiness, and I realize the futility of my life, and I see it honestly, and I turn to follow Jesus' way because he invites me in. He says, I'll, I'll pay for your sins. I'll invite you in. Come, come follow me, and I'll lead you. And then he leads me into godliness. And when it happens, he did it, and he gets the credit, not me. And when it doesn't, it's because I'm still in my flesh. And then I try with his help to live this new way. You know, a child acting like his father because he wants to become a grown-up is not a hypocrite. It's somebody who's growing up. It's a, there's a process to it, right? Last week, Paul, uh, Peter's word said, like newborn infants crave pure spiritual milk. Like we're in process, we're growing. And so it's not hypocrisy. And I think about Peter because he went through such a transformation that in this, in this passage in his epistle, he's writing about something that at one point he rejected. He's rejected Christ's cross and his own cross. Consider, I, I need to take you back in, in um, the Bible a little bit. Consider what happened in Matthew chapter 16. It says that um, Peter had just done something awesome. He realized that Jesus is the Christ and confessed him as the Christ. And Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. You're the rock, and I'm going to build my church on you. And then in the very next paragraph, Jesus says, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. It's a bold move to come to recognize that Jesus is the Christ, and then in, in the next paragraph, rebuke him for anything. But when he hears of the cross and suffering, he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then we know the famous response. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. At this point in, Jesus, in Peter's ministry, he couldn't handle Jesus' death. This idea that his Lord would go to a cross and suffer and die. But after he's reinstated, after he's full of the Holy Spirit, he writes in this epistle, in verse 18, he's praising God for the, for the cross. He says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now he gets it. Now he understands the significance and importance of the cross. Once for sins. There's no um, atonement needed after that. This is it. The once once for all time, death of Christ on the cross atones for all sins that people will repent of and come to him. When that happens, your sins are paid for. He doesn't have to keep doing this over and over again like the Old Testament sacrificial system where they have to keep bringing a lamb each year and they have to do all these sacrifices. Once for all sins, this is an incredible gift. The righteous for the unrighteous. It acknowledges that people are sinful and broken, but Jesus was perfect. He was righteous, and he, di he died for unrighteous people. And there's this incredible thing, and the theologians call it the imputed grace, where his righteousness is imputed to you. You don't earn it. 
simply because you accept the gift, God sees you in the righteousness of Christ at the core, even though your life is still a wreck. And then gradually, he begins transforming you from the inside out. That's the great exchange where the one who was righteous took the the payment of those of us that were unrighteous and deserved that cross. He took our payment once for all, and then he did it, it says, that he might bring us to God. So whereas there's this holy God and sinful people and this huge gap, the cross bridges the gap, and now we can come into the presence of a holy God in the righteousness of Christ and be accepted, not judged, not under wrath, no condemnation, be forgiven. This is really good news, and Peter's now writing about this because he understands it. Jesus was put to death, but then raised to new life, and that gives us hope. Righteousness is credited by faith, and this is, by the way, the only way to God. There is no other way. This is the one way in, and Peter will say that in my next point. So he resisted the cross at first, but then as a transformed man, embraced it, celebrates it, and and preaches it, and proclaims it everywhere. But Peter also resisted his own suffering and what it would mean. You know, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your own cross daily. There's a kind of suffering that, that these exiles in this world have to live. To be a Christian, there's going to be suffering. And in Matthew uh, chapter 26, Jesus, you know, was, was in his moment of temptation in the garden, and then he was going to be arrested. And, you know, he told them what was coming. Peter was so insistent that he would go even to death with his Lord. And it doesn't take but a few hours before that changes. Once the reality of the arrest and the torture sets in, fear takes over. And so it says this. This is uh, Matthew 26. It says, now Peter was sitting outside of the courtyard. This is where Jesus was arrested. And a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you mean. And then when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to him, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The thought of having to suffer alongside Jesus caused him, in fear, to deny him three times. And by the way, that would have been me too, and probably you. We can make big pledges when things are safe, but when it gets hard, the plan goes out the window, fear sets in, and you do all sorts of things, and you can't think, you can't believe you thought that or did that. How could I deny Jesus? I know he's the Christ. I can't imagine the pain. Actually, I kind of can, because we sort of live it. When he goes out and weeps bitterly, and we realize how good God is and how quick we are to, to sell him out. That's the human problem. Again, not hypocrisy, just sin and brokenness. He was so confident of his loyalty and, and shocked by his moment of weakness. Now, later, Jesus reinstates him in John chapter 21. Three times he denied him. Three times Jesus says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my flock. Do you love me? And three times he reinstates him. And then at Pentecost, he fills him with the Holy Spirit. Peter is a different man because of what God has done in his life. And so now he's moved from that to a kind of almost, he's almost dismissive in that epistle about suffering. In verse 13, it says, now who is there to harm you? 
if you're zealous for what is good? Well, that's not a rhetorical question implying there's no one to harm you if you do good. There are people that will harm you. There are people that are not happy. When a Christian lives a righteous life or does something good, the people that want to do bad feel judged by it, and they are. It's not that you're standing in judgment. It's just that the holiness of God's grace in your life is showing their absence of goodness, and so they want to stop it. They want to get you to be part of the evil that they're, they're going into or somehow hurt you or there's persecution that happens. I don't even know that it's always cognitive. I think it's more of an emotional reaction against goodness. Because if, if you are down on my level, then nobody is judging anybody. We can all just revel in the, in the mire. But if you start living for God, that shows a difference. And the contrast becomes an attack. So who, who is there? I mean, he writes, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Well, anybody that doesn't want to do good, anybody that's walking in evil, there are actually people. And then he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord and as holy. This happened to him, but it's not just cheap talk. He's not saying one thing and doing another thing. You know, Peter and John healed a man who was at the temple gate and had been crippled for a long time in Acts, right when the, the early church starts getting uh, started. And they are, of course, everyone is amazed at this, and they're brought before the council, the religious leaders, and they're questioned, and they're, they're threatened to stop talking about Jesus. And they're like, it's by Jesus that this man was healed. That's the power. You crucified him, God raised him, he's alive. And they're like, you're trying to bring his blood upon us. And it says, um, they, they spoke boldly, and, and they said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no, under name, no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. And this is interesting. It says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Through Jesus, they got boldness to talk about him, even to the powers that be. They were not afraid. They had this boldness. They had clarity. These were uneducated fishermen. They were common people, but they had been with Jesus and now were empowered in a certain way, full of boldness. And then a little bit later, they're actually, they actually do suffer in Acts chapter 5. I mean, they, they, they suffer, and their reaction is interesting. You know, they, they, they arrest the apostles, uh, and, and then and then they threaten them again, and Peter and the apostles say, you be the judge. Should we obey God or man? The answer is obvious. We're going to obey God. And they, they are beaten, and, um, and then Gamaliel, who's, who was the top Pharisee teacher of the day, reasons with the council and says, listen, be careful what you're going to do to these people. If this is just a human thing, eventually it'll fizzle, and he gives some examples of other important people that have raised up and then fizzled out. He says, but if this is of God, you might find yourself fighting against God, and you can't stop this if this is of God. And so it says, they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. So he suffering, actual physical suffering. It says, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What a different perspective. They were rejoicing that they were sharing somehow in the dishonor and the suffering of Jesus because they were affiliated with him. They saw this as a good thing and counted it as a blessing. And so he's saying in here, you'll be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord and as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. That's the interesting thing. Life under the cross looks different, and people will see the difference. There's a huge change in Peter's life. And then we come to that passage there um, about being prepared to make a defense. I think it's the best verse in the scriptures to support evangelism. Chapter, or 1 Peter 3, verse 15 says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. You know, just a subtle testimony. And what, what I often tell people is, don't make it theological, because then you can discuss and debate theology. Make it personal, make it subjective. Why are you a Christian? If you're a believer, why? What has God done in your life? And if you, if you tell where you were, how you met Jesus, what he's done to transform your life, no one can say, you liar, that's not true. It's your subjective experience. It's your relationship with God, which, by the way, is an ongoing thing, right? That was why they said, who are we going to obey, God or man? We're talking to God all the time. He's at work in our lives. At that point in their ministry, they were so anointed in the Spirit that even the shadow of Peter that fell on a sick person, that sick person got healed. The Lord was doing mighty works through them. And like, we're going to reject that God and, and listen to you religious leaders? No way. God is at work in our lives. So always be prepared to give to make a defense, an, an apolo, apologia is the word, like an ap apologetic argument for the faith, for anyone that asks the reason for your hope. Why do you have hope in God? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he loves me. He keeps blessing me. He keeps changing my life. He's using me in a way that is way above what I'm qualified for. He's put me as a witness in this world that is, that is not following him. And he's invited me by his strength, by his grace, to follow him. Like, I'm talking for all of us. That's our story. It's an incredible thing. So, in verse 8, though, he's saying, believers, you've got to be like-minded about this. The church shouldn't be divided on it. The church should recognize we are sojourners in this hostile land and live by God's grace, be humble about what he's doing in your life, and be ready to make an answer to anyone who says, why don't you do the stuff we do? We want to do all this other stuff, and you won't join in with us. You, you don't lie. You won't steal from the company. You won't fill in the blank, whatever the stuff is. Be ready to give an answer. But I'll say this. Sometimes the church tries to give answers when there's not a question being asked. And that's where, you know, you beat somebody over the head with the Bible. They're not actually asking. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm saying go out and follow God humbly, live differently than this world, and when people notice it, and ask you about it, then tell them. And don't, still, still don't take the Bible and hit them with it. They don't need, nobody likes that. You simply say, I know God. He's come into my life. He's transforming my life. This is good news. So maybe you should consider it. Maybe he'll come into your life too. Why don't you invite him? See what he might do for you. See what he might do through you. Invite people in. So how would you answer that question? What is God doing in your life right now? Not what did he do, what is he doing? I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, to be able to answer that question. What is God currently doing in your life right now? How is he preparing you for glory? How is he transforming you? How is he empowering you to live this life in this broken world? Give a personal testimony. And keep in mind those two anti-hypocrisy um, postures. Humble grace, 
recognizing what God has done for me, and being real about the road ahead. I am not yet done. I've got a long way to go still, but by God's grace, I'll get there. He's doing it, and I'm welcoming it. Life under the cross looks different in this world, and so expect different results. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask that you would fill this room with your spirit. I pray that you would show us the ways that you've blessed us and are blessing us. Lord, would you, would you stir up some conversations in our lives this week with other people that don't yet know you? Lord, stir them to ask the question of why we look different. And then I pray for boldness. Lord, I'm grateful for Peter and the way that you changed his life and how he celebrates the cross and even his own suffering. Lord, I'm humbled that he was willing to be crucified upside down for you as a martyr. Lord, would you make us bold? Help us, Lord. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.